Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Thursday, January 1st, 2015. This is podcast number 386, and I have a couple of announcements before we get going into the podcast. This is actually the 451st file that we've uh, that we've got here at badquaker.com. We list uh, podcast number 386, but the odd way that that uh, works out when we very first started the Bad Quaker website, uh, I didn't really understand how iTunes and Stitcher and Podcast Deutschland and all these other organizations, I didn't understand how they uh, re- essentially rebroadcast the podcasts. Um, so I had a, a difference, but I was making it, I was differentiating between the actual podcasts and uh, just reading articles that I had written or that others had written and interviews. So there were, there were some of them that were like interview one, interview two, and then there was like article one and article two and so forth. So, uh, and then eventually I figured out that this just all made it more confusing than it needed to be. And, uh, and so I started just numbering the podcasts and the the files separately. So there's a little bit of confusion there. I th- I'm not sure how we're going to do this. And here's a little bit of a uh, an announcement on on what's going to be going on in 2015. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do the the archive on this. We may rename all of the files and repost them all and delete all the old ones. Although that is an unbelievably huge amount of work, we may just go with the cumbersome numbering system that they currently have. I'm not really sure how we're going to do this. We haven't figured it out, but we will be, I hope, I, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I hate to speak about the future in any kind of absolute terms, but we certainly will try to archive the, um, the podcasts in a in a way that they're easier to get to. I know I've been saying that for a while, but this is our goal for 2015. We want to archive the entire website so that all of the podcasts are easier to get to. It won't be in a blog format anymore. Uh, what we're looking at is some kind of a just a single page with maybe a, a some kind of links to month by month or links to topics or whatever. And, uh, and no more, uh, of the blog format where things are going to be updated. It's just going to be a static website where you can go to it and, and maybe search it or find whatever you're looking for, but it won't be updated. And what we're looking at doing in 2015 is, uh, we're going to have a couple more podcasts. I've got some things that I need to cover with Kai. And there might be one or two more interviews, but essentially we're going to be winding this down in the immediate future and there won't be any more podcasts at some point in time. 
Now, in reference to the to the Bad Quaker Forum, if you're a member of the Bad Quaker Forum today, there was an announcement made on that forum. You can get over there and read it for yourself and comment on it. If you're not a member of the Bad Quaker Forum, I would encourage you not to go join it because, in all likelihood, the Bad Quaker Forum is going to be uh, disappearing into the the nether regions of the internet. Um, if you have, if you're a member of the forum and you have comments on that, be sure and get over and put those comments there. We're going to consider everything that everybody has to say. We, we have to, I mean, we don't have a choice in this. We have to downsize the entire website and the forum is one of the biggest, uh, bandwidth eaters. So, uh, so it, it is gonna have to be probably, uh, again, not absolutely speaking of the future as if I know what's gonna happen, but in all likelihood, the Bad Quaker Forum is going to have to be a sacrificial lamb that's gonna have to be cut out in order to get the website down to a small enough size that we can afford to host it. And that's another issue right now. Uh, the Bad Quaker website comes up for renewal. I think it's either in, I think it's in February that the Bad Quaker website comes up for renewal and the funding doesn't currently exist to make that happen. So what we're looking at here is we're in this odd situation where I'm literally telling people, you know, if you have, if you have a recurring account with, uh, PayPal that donates to Bad Quaker, uh, please kill it. Now, that's a weird thing. You might say, well, what are you talking about? You don't want my money? That's correct. Uh, cut that, cut that off, because eventually the Bad Quaker, um, pod, uh, the Bad Quaker, uh, PayPal site is gonna go away, and there won't be a Bad Quaker PayPal site. Eventually, there won't be a Bad Quaker pay side of the forum. Eventually, you know, all these avenues of donating to BadQuaker.com are going to vanish because there is not going to be a way to support BadQuaker.com. However, if you feel that the archives are something that should stay on the Internet, and if you feel strongly enough that that at least the archives should be saved, then anything that you want to donate between now and February with uh with specifically with with it in mind that it's going to be used to archive the website and pay for the renewal on the website if the money comes in between now and february to do that then we'll archive the website and we'll make it so that people can get to it and search it and find uh, all of the podcast files that are on there. We'll probably end up losing all the written files, all the articles, but at least we'll be able to salvage the um, the the audio files. Uh, if the funding is there, if the funding is not there, you know, essentially the market is speaking, and that's all going to vanish. And uh, that I'm, you know, in ways that would be sad, but in other ways, if the market is not there for the archive of the Bad Quaker. Uh, podcasts, then the um, the market is not there. It's like wooden spokes in you know in 1920 or something, or it's like buggy whips, or it's like you know uh, building uh, co- contractors who specialize in building carriage houses. If the if the market demand is not there for a permanent archive of the Bad Quaker files, then there will not be an archive of the Bad Quaker files. And I'm not one to come out and beg for money and do all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying. That if the market's not there, I'm not going to force it to happen. I'm not going to continue 
to take money out of my own pocket, like some kind of an ego boost or something like that, to put something on the internet that only I want on the internet. So if, if the, if there's a market for the archive, then the market has to supply, uh, what it takes to make that archive take place. Um, all right. Now on a similar note, the reason that the Bad Quaker podcast is ending is actually, uh, you know, multi, multifaceted. First off, I'm going to, uh, work more and more with the Freedom Fiends radio show. We're trying to get it on more and more radio stations. We're on somewhere around 35 radio stations now. And we're, we're hoping to expand that. I'm hoping to support Michael and the other Freedom Fiends over there in trying to get the Freedom Fiends radio show, uh, as professional as possible, as diverse in its topics as possible, and to make it a true outreach. You know, badquaker.com has been, since its inception, it has not been an outreach tool. It has been an educating tool for people on the Liberty Mission that are already understanding of these basic concepts and principles that we talk about. Uh, it's never really been my goal with badquaker.com to, ter- to try to reach out to new people and and uh, bring these concepts in a new way. Uh, that's why I've been rather blunt at many times with what I've said, because I, you know, I, I really don't, in many ways, I, I have not focused this thing towards trying to go point by point and and win the hearts and minds of new people. I've tried to refine those who already uh, are thinking in this way. But the Freedom Fiends is not with that purpose. The purpose of the Freedom Fiends radio show is to get the message into ears that are that have never heard this message before. We are not preaching to the choir. We are trying to get out there on the streets and put this message in people's cars as they're driving back and forth to whatever they're doing. And that's the purpose of the Freedom Fiends. So again, if you want to support the archive and you want to make sure that there's a, a permanent, uh, a Bad Quaker, uh, a permanent record of the Bad Quaker podcasts, then you can do that. But if you want to support this mission in general, then the Freedom Fiends is the way to do it. Uh, contributing to the Freedom Fiends rather than a monthly support of the Bad Quaker uh, podcast. So now, uh, uh, that's one reason for stopping the, uh, the Bad Quaker podcast. To be absolutely honest, another reason is because it is just too much of a mental burden on me to sit down and do six or eight or ten hours of research and then an hour or hour and a half of recording and another two, three hours of editing to try to get one podcast put up on the Internet. And that's what it takes for me to do this. It's, it's a little easier when I do interviews, but if I'm going to do an actual podcast where I research the topic and I go through the whole thing and get it all straight in my mind, it literally is like, you know, it's an all-day thing with a couple of days' work, and I just don't have the health to continue doing that. Uh, it's just something that has to stop for health purposes. And when I say health purposes, I'm talking specifically about the brain damage that I've received and the, and the, the problems that I have in trying to maintain clarity of thought and, and using my speaking talents and trying to put these things together in a way that can be understood. Uh, it's just not something that I can continue doing due to physical limitations, uh, with my health. So with all that said, uh, let's go ahead and get into the podcast. This is an uh, interview that I did with uh, the uh, the guy from 
Uh, the Dangerous History podcast goes by the name of Professor CJ, and here is the uh, the interview that I did with him. Uh, so, folks, uh, this has been Stone the Bad Quaker podcast. With me is uh, my friend CJ. He is a professor of history at a university, at a college, and um, his podcast is the Dangerous History podcast. Now, we've had some problems with Skype this morning. So uh, we're just going to get right into it and try and if and if we have to jump in and out and restart Skype, this podcast today might be a little choppy. If so, that's why. That's what we're doing. So uh, CJ, um, uh, let me explain uh, both to you and to my audience. Uh, as a Quaker, I don't use uh, titles of honor. I can say that CJ is a professor at a college, but. Uh, in the oddities of Quakerism, I don't call people, you know, Professor So and So or Doctor So and So or, you know, uh, whatever. I, I I differentiate between an actual title and a uh, and a, a description of your work. So I don't mean that to offend or to uh, degrade the the work that you do, C.J. Um, but uh, most people would uh, prefer to refer to you as uh, Professor C.J. And welcome to the Bad Quaker Podcast after that long and lengthy introduction. That's okay, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. And uh, don't worry, I, I don't take uh, titles too seriously either. I'm probably one of the few people at my college who uh, purposefully did not put his diploma up on his office wall. So <laughs> I, I appreciate the sentiment. Although I, I've considered maybe getting one from, from Hogwarts. <laughs> And there we had a uh, Skype problem. Are you back with us, CJ? All right. <laughs> yes, I, I can. I can hear you now. Okay. For how long? Who knows? Um, this will be a fun thing popping in and out. Okay, so yeah. let's jump right in. I uh, I do want to remind the listeners that I'll be winding down the Bad Quaker podcast, and the whole reason in introducing CJ and the Dangerous History podcast is to give the listeners. Another place to go to get some of the history stuff that that I've talked about. And I should mention right off that CJ and I are not going to see, you know, if we talk enough and if we talk about enough issues and if we talk about enough of history, we're not going to 100% agree on everything. He's probably not going to agree with me on some of the more radical ideas I have on the origin of the state, uh, although we might, we haven't actually talked about it, but some of the more radical things that I've talked about, CJ may not uh, accept that, or you know, some of the things that CJ might believe, I may not accept it, and it's not necessary that we absolutely agree on every single moment of history. It's only important that we agree on the general outline of how to look at history and how to be constantly available to adjust what we believe based on new evidence and, and new circumstances that comes up. Is that is that uh, acceptable, CJ? Uh, that sounds good to me. We, we probably agree on a heck of a lot more than we disagree on, I, I would say, uh, based on, on what I've heard of your show. So I, I you know, would for, tend, for what that's worth. I would tend to think that way. Uh, mostly the reason why that I got a hold of you and wanted to introduce my, my audience to you is I listened to your episode on revisionist history, and I thought that's exactly what I want people to understand. I, I want to go through a real quick list of some of the episodes. And uh, CJ, how many do you know off the top of your head? How many episodes you've got recorded so far? Um, I just put up number forty-six yesterday. 
and I, I have to admit, I haven't actually listened to that one yet. I saw it, but I haven't downloaded it and listened to it yet. But some of the things I wanted to mention is he's got an episode on Edward Mandel House, which is very revealing. It gives you a lot of the background information about what was happening around 1900 when the progressives were really... Um, they had been in and out of power a little bit, but in 19, about around 1900, they really came to their full blossom and they really came into American politics in a way that they never had before. And Edward Mandel House was a, was a key aspect of that taking place. And CJ really just hits it out of the park with that episode. But he also does an episode on COINTELPRO, on revisionist history that I mentioned, on CIA's mind control experiments, on the very critical and very important to understand story of Gary Webb. Uh, he does a really good, uh, a couple of episodes on the Bronze Age collapse and the Greek Dark Age. And if you, if you don't know about the Bronze Age collapse and the Greek Dark Age, there, there's just this gap in history where typical, um, government schools pretty much just pass over it and you have the whole thing of uh, the Mycenaean civilization and some of the older uh, um, Mediterranean civilizations just kind of vanish in history and then out of nowhere these so-called sea people or you know uh, maybe Phoenicians maybe uh, Philistines uh, different people have called them by different names but they kind of just cropped out of nowhere and started becoming a serious problem and uh and then the problem seems to have solved itself and typical you know government school they don't really go into that they just kind of glaze over it like either it didn't happen or like it's not important and cj does a really good job of showing some of the possibilities of what happened why it happened and what lessons we can learn from it today so um Let's see, which which of those, CJ, would you like to, to tackle first before we really get into this too far? Oh, um, I, I don't know. I guess, I guess the first thing I, I would say is that um, building off what you were saying about about the gaps in typical history education, that I found that both in, in my teaching and since I started my podcast that a lot of what I'm doing is – Filling in those blank spots in the textbook, you know, it's like the old the old saying about to be a good economist, you have to be as aware of what is not there as the, of the unseen as of the seen. So, in a lot of cases, like like in the case of the Bronze Age collapse, uh, even the best world history textbooks will just sort of give it a paragraph. They'll say, "Yeah, you had all these civilizations, and then man, a bunch of bad stuff happened, and uh, yeah, it's kind of you know five centuries of darkness, but." Yeah, next thing you know, everything was working out okay. So, you know, let's, let's move along. Nothing to see here. And a lot of times those, those blank spots, those gaps are, are where the, there's the most interesting things to dig up. You know, I, I, my regular listeners will recognize this. I refer that mentality as the Forrest Gump version of history. Where, you know, in the, in the movie Forrest Gump, he's telling a story. He'll, he said, I was just walking through the jungle one day and all of a sudden he jumped up and bit me. There's like, there's no background. There's no reason. There's no logic for this event. You know, that oh. feller was riding along in his car one day and somebody shot him and then somebody yeah. shot his brother. And there's the whole history of the sixties wrapped up in two idiotic lines. Yep. And yep. so many people 
think that way. So many, actually so many historians and so many teachers teach history that way. You know, uh, well, France is just walking along and everything's fine. And all of a sudden there's a revolution. And then that fellow Robespierre came along and then he was dead. And then Napoleon took over. And wait, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that, uh, that's kind of, uh, that's kind of how they deal with a lot of stuff. Even the European Dark Age is kind of just glazed over like, like nothing happened. Like Rome collapsed and then a thousand years later, the printing press was invented and everybody was happy. Yeah, and and I'm I'm not a um a specialist really in much of anything. I'm I'm one of those generalists that dabbles in everything. But my understanding is that there's a an ongoing debate within people who specialize in the collapse of the Roman Empire and the Dark Ages that there's sort of a revisionist camp saying that oh the the collapse of the Roman Empire and the Dark Ages in Europe really weren't that bad. There was just sort of cultural change and so on. And then there's sort of counter revisionists now popping up against those people saying. Actually, there's a heck of a lot of forensic archaeological evidence that shows that in almost every measurable material way, people's standard of living and quality of life declined enormously. You know, so there's sort of, there's a, there's a camp saying that there was almost like an accommodation where the barbarians came in and, and just sort of uh, assimilated the local culture and, you know, they didn't go around breaking as much stuff, but, uh, I'm not so sure that the evidence supports that. Yeah. Anytime there's a power gap, you know, I'll, I'll take it to the future. Let's push this ahead to the future. A lot of people in the United States, um, two things. First off, they have a tendency to be, to only think of America and not really think of the rest of the world. So if you talk about like the possible collapse of government, they'll only think of the collapse of the American government, of the Washington-based government. Mm. And, you know, uh, they don't think about a worldwide situation. But let's just speculate. Let's just say for some reason, whatever. And, and like you've said, usually these things are not one item that causes it. Usually there's a series of events that sets up something, and oh. uh, it's usually not just one catastrophic event. It's usually a, a, a pile-on situation where one thing and another and another, and then eventually it all collapses. But let's just speculate for for the fun of it that something happens tomorrow, a superstorm or a volcano or a nuclear attack or something, um, a, a, an EMP or something. And the United States government is incapable because it's so stretched out worldwide and it's, you know, there's so much things going on. The United States government literally collapses and can't maintain its position on a, uh, you know, in the, in the situation that it's in. There would be a massive power, uh, gap. There would be a hole and, uh, and something would have to flow into that. That would either be, you know, a UN situation where they would come in and take over, or it would be, uh, you know, a military situation where the United States military would take over, or there would, there would be some kind of something that would fill that power gap very quickly. And so the, the collapse of the United States government in and of itself would not mean a worldwide collapse in the state. It would just mean that there would be a real nasty, ugly burp in North America. But it wouldn't necessarily mean the end of government in North America. Uh, what's your thoughts on that, CJ? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I think that it um, the collapse of a state 
is in many ways similar to a revolution in that you just end up with with a new a new authority coming in and as in the case of revolutions very often perhaps more often than not the the new boss is is not the same as the old boss he's worse yeah exactly yeah so it it's a tricky scenario i mean just for example i i could imagine if there was a government collapse in america right now in a lot of urban areas probably the the new governments would would at least for for the time being be street gangs yeah and i'm not so sure that's an improvement right <laughs> i mean you know it's it's not as different as you might think but uh still not necessarily an improvement yeah you can think in history just in recent history you know the uh we'll take the american revolution or so-called american revolution i prefer uh not to refer to it as a revolution because the colonists never attempted to overthrow parliament but uh but in the war of separation that they had with england um it's it's often glazed over that the tax burden multiplied tremendously from the time you know when the colonists were complaining about the tea tax and complaining about you know the stamp act to the time that washington was putting upon them the the whiskey uh, tax and individual states were putting on property tax and you know individual counties were were figuring out that they could also get in on the looting and so by the uh, late 1700s the tax burden uh, and the the existence of a standing army and the military burden for a lot of people in the newly formed United States was worse than it was, say, in 1720 or something, when there was relatively weak or no government in a lot of the colonies. Yeah, yeah, and, and you see a version of that in um, most revolutions, too. Uh, French Revolution, you know, you end up uh, governed by the Jacobins and then by Napoleon. I'm sure there were a lot of people who were nostalgic for the good old days of the old <laughs> monarchy. And to say nothing of, you know, how many Russians were probably nostalgic for the, the good old days of the Tsar, bad as he was, once the Bolsheviks were running the show. Yeah, and you even see this in modern times in Egypt with what went on there and in, uh, you know, in, the, in, in North Africa and the different... Uh, you know, there was so much excitement. Oh, there's revolution spreading across North Africa. They're going to be free. They're going to be free. No, they're not. You know, uh, one thug goes out and another group of thugs come in. And so they have a different goal and they have a different, you know, a different look to them. But they're still thugs and they're still oppressing people. Maybe they're oppressing a different ethnic group or whatever. But, you know, essentially it's just like you said, one goes out, another comes back in. Yeah, and as, you know, perhaps on PC as it is to say, I, I should say that the closest thing I, I have to a specialty in, in that it was the focus of my graduate school work was uh, British Empire. And you find that in a lot of places after what they call decolonization occurs, you know, mostly following World War II, that in a lot of these colonies – where the British or in some cases the French or whoever, where they leave. And, and by the way, I don't mean this as, as any sort of defense or endorsement of colonialism at all. But nonetheless, you, you see a similar phenomenon in a lot of these countries, not all of them, but in a lot of them, where when the colonials leave, the local oligarchs who end up in charge end up governing far worse, uh, as bad as the colonials may have been, you know, end up being even more oppressive and and exploitative and so on. So much so that in at least some of the former colonial countries, there are old people alive today who are nostalgic for the days of when the colonists were running things. You know, uh, um, 
India is a real good example of that. Gandhi, everybody likes to, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people like to look to Gandhi and say, oh, look, you know, he was peaceful. He did all these great things. He ran the English, the British out of uh, India and, and allowed India to be self-ruled. Well, first off, self-ruled, if there's a government, then you don't have self-rule. You, you just have a different gang. But, uh, you know, for all the work and all the good things that that Gandhi can be accredited with, what he essentially did was he ran out the, or or his movement ran out the British but allowed local tyrants to take their place. And so the the Indian government today, the only saving grace in the Indian government is that it's so big and cumbersome that it's stupid. It's like a big giant dinosaur eating its own tail. Uh, so it's not that hard to get around it in different ways. But if you come under the focus of that uh, huge bureaucratic monster, it will eat you, and that's you know, and and the the uh, the association that is made in India between giant corporations and the Indian government that allowed things like the horrible uh, uh, that horrible disaster was it Dupont or I I can't remember which chemical manufacturer it was. It may not have been Dupont that oh. uh, poisoned so many people in India, and right under the nose of the government. You know, and essentially it's like, oh, well, that's too bad. You know, roll the bodies out of the way and get back to work. Um, they, passing the baton from one horrible government to another horrible government only gives the illusion uh, of accomplishing freedom. It doesn't actually bring freedom. Yeah, the, the only revolution that really is of any lasting importance is the revolution in each individual's mind. Exactly. Um. Let's uh, let's hit some of the other things that you've talked about in um, in your podcast. You uh, talked about uh, COINTELPRO a little bit. Uh, to kind of touch that for the listeners and uh, give them your your uh, sort of a synopsis of your view on on what happened with that. Sure, sure. Well, um, COINTELPRO came about in the early days of the Cold War, and Admittedly, it built on a lot of things that the FBI had done going way, way back, um, even to the so-called Palmer raids in the aftermath of, of World War One, which um, was was J. Edgar Hoover's initial kind of claim to fame. But given the Cold War context and all the hysteria in the late '40s and early '50s, uh, you know, terrible fears of, of communists hiding under every bed, you know, kind of like how Al Qaeda is now, and. Um, the the FBI began a program again under the great J Edgar Hoover uh, to basically use all sorts of means, many of which would be considered completely illegal if the laws were actually applied to the FBI like they are to everybody else, uh, to bring down any organization that the government deemed quote unquote subversive, even if that organization was was completely nonviolent, was not advocating anything other than sort of protest and and changing the system, etc. So it initially mostly targeted communists and other sort of far leftists, and then over time it it also targeted uh, civil rights organizations, anti-war organizations. Once the Vietnam War got going, and then. Um, the Black Power, the, the Black Panthers, and those sorts of groups, and, and the Ku Klux Klan as well. So, you know, it, admittedly, not all of these groups that that were targeted were, were totally nonviolent, but on the other hand, they were being they were being uh, attacked by the FBI in in ways that 
you know, e- you and I both know that that the the Constitution is is the the furthest thing from a from a magic freedom blanket. <laughs> but you know, uh, th- that said, I, I I'm kind of a fan of at least the sentiments in the Bill of Rights, and um, you know, it, it's a clear cut example of of the FBI uh, just repeatedly and obviously uh, completely breaking the the Bill of Rights. So, and one of the things that they sort of uh, I hate to say it, but it seemed like they almost enjoyed doing it, was sending in um, moles into these organizations yes. to try to not only, you know, not only just get in there and spy on them and figure out what they're doing, but to actually try to guide them into doing stuff that that could, you know, baiting them into doing things that the FBI could then take action against them for. Yeah, absolutely. A, a lot of times they would either have paid informants or actual FBI agents who would would uh, infiltrate these radical or subversive groups and would cause all, all kinds of uh, in, internal discord, uh, even little things like getting members to turn on each other, right? So, you know, let's say I'm an FBI agent or an informant and I infiltrate your group and I don't actually find any evidence that anybody's committing any crimes, but... I might start a rumor within the group that oh, Ben Stone is a uh, is an FBI informant, you know. And in reality, I'm the FBI informant, right? But the next thing you know, every member of the group is turning on each other, um, you know, accusing each other. Everybody gets paranoid, and of course, it it's impossible to have any kind of of a of a, of a movement of an organized uh, group or whatever if the members are constantly, you know, looking out, thinking everyone else but them is an informant. So there's that, and then there's, like you were saying, trying to um, uh, instigate and incite groups that may not have actually been violent initially and, and trying to incite them into doing something so that then they can be busted for that. And, of course, we, we've seen things like this um, in recent years with the so-called War on Terror. Um, I'm going to put a link in today's show notes for the Dangerous History podcast where you can listen to CJ and uh, and download his podcasts. But I also wanted to mention I'm going to put a link in today's show notes for Claire Wolf's great little book, Rats. And it's a really small little thing. You can download it for free, read it in a couple hours. But essentially she goes into the same kind of thing uh, as far as describing what these moles can look like, what they act, how they act, and so forth. And oftentimes they will come into a group and they will have at least lip service. They'll have all the fundamentals of, of what the group stands for. They, they can recite, you know, word for word, all the right things to say to make them sound like they are. Oftentimes, uh, they'll, they'll sound like the most radical of, you know, of the followers of whatever the group is. And eventually they'll start to call for the most radical actions possible. Um, Will Coley from Muslims for Liberty uh, is a pretty good guy. I've known him for a while. And his quote in reference to what they have done with Muslims in the United States is, he says, they'll go into a mosque and they'll pick the stupidest guy in the mosque. And then they'll separate him, they'll get him by himself, and they'll essentially put a mole in with him to uh, to guide him. And then they'll get this guy, you know, they, they, uh, their mole will feed him money, feed him ideas, feed him plans. And, and actually uh, what they have done at times is actually provided for him real explosives and then send him out on, an, on you know, a mission, so to speak, 
and he goes out to plant this bomb or whatever, and lo and behold, the FBI is there waiting for him and bust him. And and it's a great victory for the FBI because they stopped this horrible terrorist that they created. And so it's well known, it's well documented that the FBI has done that in modern times with Muslims in mosques in the United States. So you can imagine back in the 1960s when there was no internet and there was no videos and there was no real knowledge of this stuff going on, you can imagine the the free pass that the FBI and CIA and other agencies had to do this kind of stuff without the media even you know saying a word about it. They just gave them a pass on it. Yeah, yeah, especially in, in the context of the 50s and 60s, the media gatekeepers were sort of in their prime. Uh, you didn't have the internet and all the things go along with that. So basically, if the government could get a handful of networks to say, we're not going to cover whatever, you know, we're not going to cover X, then it, it doesn't get covered. You know, there, you, you, it was, it was so much easier, um, when the gatekeepers were really still, you know, healthy and hearty. You know, I'm thinking about, this is not a COINTELPRO, uh, operation, but I'm thinking about what happened with, uh, uh, oh, what was that called in uh, North Vietnam that they used as an excuse to get the United States involved in North Vietnam? Oh, yeah, the uh, Gulf of Tonkin incident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I kept thinking Bay of. All, all I could think of was Bay of Pigs, and I knew that wasn't <laughs> it. But, yeah, the Gulf of Tonkin incident um, could have easily been debunked if the American news media would have done what people think that it's their job to do, which is really right. not what they do. But had the American news media just taken a, you know, the slightest glance at the evidence presented, they would have seen that the president was lying and, and, you know, the whole excuse to go into this Vietnam operation was based on a lie. Uh, the whole thing was, was, was staged at best and uh, a complete bumbling fiasco. If, if, according to how you look at it, it was either totally staged or complete idiocy on the part of the of the players involved and then the president using that as an as an excuse to uh to get his uh uh his big money people involved into this war yeah and because he was worried that uh johnson in his in his reelection was worried that barry goldwater might call him soft on communism if he didn't you know take stronger measures in in vietnam so uh, politics enters into it, but as far as far as uh, uh, Cohen Telpro goes, they really went pretty far. In in some cases, even in terms of like blackmailing people and so on, there was a famous one that that came to light some years back, where the FBI and, and it was a fairly high up guy, a fairly high up uh, agent, m- more or less uh, in charge or second in command or something of Cohen Telpro. Um, they they spied on Martin Luther King, and of course documented him having affairs which we now know he did and then blackmailed him and he even wrote a letter to martin luther king urging him to commit suicide uh because of his marital affairs so there's there's your tax dollars at work the fbi trying to get martin luther king to kill himself you know and this is be a really good time let's just dip our toe our little toe our little pinky toe into conspiracy theory just for a moment here you know, um, Hunter, Tom, Hunter Thompson, the uh, somewhat crazed uh, media uh, individual that uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and several other things like that are, are about him, in the weeks before he died, um, he actually said to his good friend, who was also his publisher, 
that uh, if he turned up as a suicide victim, um, that it wouldn't have been him, that it's the kind of thing that they do to you. He And I, that's oh. not a direct quote. But he said that to his publisher just like two weeks before what happened. He shot himself in his own uh, office with his wife on the phone and his children in the other room. And oh. oddly enough, she heard something thump. But a gunshot over a telephone is not a thump. Right. And they weren't sure what they heard from the other room. But then, so that's a questionable situation. That's, you know, that's, there's not really a good evidential thing to say a conspiracy theory happened there. But, uh, but you did a, a, a podcast on Gary Webb, which is a, a very different situation. And there, and I'll kick out a one that happened even more recently. There, there was a, a very notable hacker that uh, committed suicide by hanging himself in his apartment because he was getting ready to face basically a lifetime in prison over doing something that is even questionable whether it was illegal or not. But um, forced suicide, whether whether they come into you and they walk into your office and they say, look, your children are in the other room. We've already shot your dog. Your children are in the other room. Here's what you can do. You can pick up this pistol that we're handing you and you can try to fight us and we'll kill you and then we'll go kill your children. Or you can type out a suicide letter on your computer right now, sign it, print it out, sign it, and then shoot yourself and we'll let your kids live. And if a situation like that was to come up, I think most people would say, look, if you let my kids live, I'll sign your stupid paper and I'll shoot myself right now. Now, that's all pure speculation, and I'm not necessarily saying that's what happened with Gary Webb. But you can imagine many situations where a person is given a scenario where they're told, if you will commit suicide right now, then none of these bad things are going to happen. But if you don't commit suicide... This is what is going to take place, and you're going to wish that you had killed yourself. Um, so, keeping all that in mind, uh, CJ, what, hap- what What do we know that happened with Gary Webb, and what are we What are we told happened with Gary? Well, I, I did that episode, um, kind of kind of one of those sort of spur of the moment things. I drove, I forget, an hour and a half, two hours to see the movie Kill the Messenger, uh, which. One of my colleagues had mentioned the movie to me. It was a kind of an indie flick, but it had a lot of a lot of big name actors in it, and it was about Gary Webb. And when I had a a day where I had some flex time, could could leave work a little bit early, I went ahead and drove um, to this little theater way the heck uh, four counties away to see it. And I really liked it. If anything, I thought it, it didn't quite have enough in it. But I understand they can't make a four hour movie. But um, so I, I decided to do that episode. I, I had read Gary Webb's book Dark Alliance long time ago, probably at least ten years ago, and I knew who he was, and I had I had watched interviews with him and that sort of thing. I knew his story reasonably well, and, and I knew the story that he was digging up. So he, he's a reporter. He was a reporter uh, for the San Jose Mercury, kind of a you know mid mid sized newspaper, nothing fancy, and he starts to. Um, he starts to just pull at a thread. I think it was a, a lady called him and said something about, oh, my boyfriend's getting busted for drug trafficking and he's uh, connected to the CIA and, uh, you know, would you want to do a story on this? And he, and at first he thinks it's completely BS, but uh, she apparently gave him some documents that, that backed up the story. So he just started to sort of pull at the thread, you know. 
and he ended up making trips down to South America and and uh, meeting with all these different people and, and slowly putting together the story of how the CIA was to some degree or another involved in significant drug trafficking from South America into the United States in the 1980s. And at first, Gary Webb wins awards. I think he even won the Pulitzer Prize, if I remember right. I think he did. Yeah, and and he's he's you know getting getting invited to to all these sort of press, you know, award ceremonies and dinners and whatever. And then the establishment strikes back, and you know whatever the the connection was, you know, whoever called who, we'll never know. But basically, all of a sudden, all the major media outlets turn on him. They start accusing him of, of fabricating stuff. They, you know, just, just slung mud at him like crazy. They pressured his bosses to basically shut him down, uh, from, from continuing to work on this project. And, and he ended up getting, I think, transferred to like the, the lowest apartment at the Mercury. He was basically like writing stories about lost dogs or something, you know. And after a while, he, he writes this book, Dark Alliance, which, which took his basic, uh, investigative, you know, series from the Mercury and, and expanded on it and blew it up into a book. And he did some freelance writing, but basically his career was destroyed. And then some years later, he, uh, commits suicide, supposedly by shooting himself twice in the head with a revolver. So. <laughs> it- and there's there's actually I, I hate to I don't mean to laugh and make light of this, but there's so many situations where a suicide has you know, it, something is marked as a suicide, and then you start to look at it and it's like yeah the guy committed suicide he was handcuffed behind his with his hands behind his back he was in the back seat of a police cruiser he had been searched twice. And yet somehow he came up with a pistol that was the same caliber as the police were using. And with his hands handcuffed behind his back, he shot himself in the right side of his head, even though he's left handed. It's clearly a suicide. And, and, you know, that's just, that's one extreme example, but it happened. And that was an actual example that actually happened. But we see that over and over and over where. Right. You know, like one person, uh, an assistant coroner that was involved in uh, the uh, uh, Andrew Breitbart, um, uh, uh, what's it called, autopsy. Right. We're told that this guy ate rat poison in his apartment and sat there and committed suicide by eating rat poison and dying. But if you've ever actually seen an animal that has digested, that has ingested rat poison, the death from rat poisoning is a horrific, painful, excruciating death. I wouldn't, I literally wouldn't wish it on a rat. And so to think that a person intentionally ingested that stuff and then took the time frame that it takes to die from it and didn't call 911, didn't try to get to an ambulance, didn't try to do something to alleviate the pain is just ludicrous. And yet, you know, even though the guy was coming out and saying something weird is going on with this Andrew Breitbart uh, autopsy, it's definitely not being handled in standard procedures. All of a sudden, the guy dies of rat poisoning suicide in his apartment. There's a rubber stamp on it. There's no further investigation. Case closed. Let's move on. Nobody sees anything. 
Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll just say right now, um, if anybody ever finds me with uh, three shots to the head from a flintlock musket, <laughs> I did not do that. That's uh, isn't that a uh, was that a, a suicide in D.C. that you're re- referring to? I don't know. Was was it the D.C. Madam? I, I forget. I know there there was some some sort of suspicious circumstances around the D.C. Madam, but I don't remember exactly what. <laughs> There's been so many of these odd ones, you know, there was a, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but there was a case during the Clinton administration where one of his top aides um, somehow on a, on a dewy, you know, morning with uh, the, with the grass wet in the park, he walked out across the grass to a, to, uh, to a spot where he chose to uh, lie down and somehow he didn't have any grass or moisture on the bottoms of his shoes. Sure. But, but there he was in the middle of a, of a park in DC, shot himself, uh, with the wrong hand, not, I, th- I think he was left hand and he shot himself in the right side of the head or, or the other way around or whatever, but it was the wrong hand. The gun wasn't uh, where it was supposed to be if he would have shot himself like that. I think, I mean, there was all kinds of circumstances involved in it. Um, and it's clearly suicide. Let's drop it and move on, you know. Right. Yeah. Was that Vince Foster? Vince Foster, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the, in the case of Gary North, um, or sorry, Gary Webb, different Gary. <laughs> I was reading the, the other there. day. That's, yeah, that's why this was in my head. Um, in the case of Gary Webb, um, you know, it is... It is extremely rare, but it does happen. There are documented cases of people shooting themselves twice in the head to kill themselves because the first shot doesn't quite do it. So it's not that it's impossible, but it's extremely rare. Yeah. And especially when you consider the fact that that uh, Gary Webb was using his uh, 38 caliber revolver. Now, a 38 is not ridiculously overpowering. That said, it's it's not exactly a 22. Right. And and the notion that you know you you can imagine that if he's if he's shooting himself he's placing the muzzle either against his temple or under his chin or in his mouth or who knows what right and the the idea that you would be shooting yourself at that sort of range with a thirty eight and still have the wherewithal to to do it a second time to finish the job that I don't know that 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 just seems tough for me to believe now is it is it impossible no there are people who have jumped off of 50 story uh, buildings and survived but it's not exactly you know the most likely thing i have speaking from experience i have been shot twice both two separate incidents both times with 22s and i can say it hurts an amazing amount uh, mm. one of the times the bullet went through a door then hit me in the chest uh-huh. And uh, and I dropped to the ground. I dropped to the floor like like a bag of potatoes. I just went straight down. I had no. It knocked my breath out. Just a little twenty two, knocked uh-huh. my breath out. I hit the floor, looked at the floor at the blood on the floor, which there wasn't that much, but there were in my eyes at that moment. There, you know, there was uh, there was blood, and the pain that I was feeling in my chest. I thought absolutely I was dead. Um. Through circumstance with the door slowing it down, it didn't, it hit my sternum and didn't penetrate the sternum. It broke the sternum, but it didn't penetrate it. But I can say from that incident, uh, absolutely the pain was unbelievable. The other time I was shot through the hand at point blank range, and 
probably the muzzle flash, the burn of the muzzle flash, uh, cooking the back of my hand, uh, hurt as much or more than the actual bullet hole. But it wasn't that so much as the, the shock that, that went through my whole system of being shot. It was, it was just completely unnerving to the point of where I, I just didn't know what to do. I just kind of sat like, like if somebody had hit me in the face with a baseball bat, it completely unnerved me. Mm-hmm. So from that little bit of experience, you know, and somebody else who's been shot in different circumstances might have a different story. But I can say that even a little 22 brings an unimaginable amount of trauma and pain to, to the, to the game when it arrives. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, even if it is in the case of, Gary Webb that, you know, one in a million fluke thing, and he actually did, you know, take his own life, to me, it still is sort of like he was killed in a way, because we have to assume that, I mean, the reason that even if he did totally commit suicide voluntarily with with no, you know, pressure from anybody directly, let's face it, I mean, his life, his career, his family life, etc., were, were all destroyed by the uh, the operation to take him down in the media. So, you know, e- even if he literally did kill himself, he was, you He was know. driven to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, and let's go into that aspect of it, too, because you had talked about the CIA's mind control experiments. There were a number of people that the CIA played with, and I use that term very intentionally. They played with these people. And the people ended up either in complete psychosis for the rest of their life or, in some cases, driven to madness and killing themselves. And in essence, you know, the, the CIA killed them, even though it was their own hand that did it. In the long right. run, really, the CIA murdered them through playing with their mind like that. Yeah, and for various reasons, we only know a tiny sliver of what actually went down around those those mind control experiments, MK Ultra, Project Artichoke, all those sorts of things, in part because a lot of the documents were destroyed by the CIA when they, when they started to get investigated in the 70s. So the documents we have are just the ones that randomly through luck escaped destruction. And then the other thing is the the scientists and the doctors that were carrying out these experiments, in most cases, did no follow-up on the people they were you know, giving hallucinogenic drugs to without their knowledge or doing other things to without their knowledge. So, I mean, imagine you bring in some guy, you dose him with a, enough LSD to, to kill a horse, and he has some kind of crazy trip. And I, I would imagine that having a, a trip when you're not even aware you're tripping must be terrifying. And then the guy is just turned loose after the experiment. In most cases, there's no follow-up. So we literally have no clue how many thousands of people might have been experimented on without their knowledge and consent that then later went, you know, absolutely crazy. And uh, who knows, you know, they killed themselves, killed somebody else. Who, who knows? You know, we can only imagine. It's oftentimes, you know, in Hollywood movies and, and even in history classes, very often we hear about the experiments that the Nazis did uh, during the 1930s and 40s, and we hear about some of the horrific things that the Japanese government did in in experimenting with, uh, you know, horrible medical experiments that they did on Chinese nationals and on Korean nationals during the late 30s and early 40s. 
and we're just appalled by these things. I mean, they're they're sickening. Uh, they hurt just to read about them, you know. Mm-hmm. But so many Americans don't know about like the Tuskegee the Tuskegee experiments. Right. I'm, I'm here in Alabama, and I have to say, I I would be willing to bet. Uh, 98% of people in Alabama don't realize what took place in Tuskegee uh, with the Tuskegee experiments. And even people who live in that town often don't know about it. If there's some kind of, uh, you know, some kind of talk about the Tuskegee Institute and so forth, immediately the topic is changed to these uh, Tuskegee flyers who were uh, uh, African-American pilots that assisted during World War II. They don't want to talk about the experiments. And and that was, uh, you know, in ways, it was ever bit as nasty as what the Nazis and the, and the uh, Japanese were doing. But for some reason, Americans don't want to think that their own government is guilty of doing the kinds of things that we very often accept that the Japanese were doing or that the Germans were doing at the time. Yeah, one of the things I constantly reiterate to my students when we cover these sorts of topics in class is that not only that, that we only know the literally tip, tip of the iceberg, but that, um, let's see, how, how do I, how do I put this? That so much of these dark things in the, the history of our own government are not even secret anymore. You know, they, they've come out one way or another. And admittedly, it's only a fraction. There's a lot of things that were successfully kept secret that we will just never know about. But so much has come out for one reason or another. And I keep having to tell them, look, there are books on, I'll tell them about something like, like what we were talking about, you know, the Tuskegee experiments or the mind control experiments. And they're shocked. And, and they're, you know, th- these are, Reasonably intelligent in most cases, 18, 19, 20-year-olds for the most part. And they're absolutely shocked. Our government did that. How come I never heard about it? And I have to keep telling them, these things are hidden in plain sight. A couple minutes on Google, you could find everything you need to know about this. Um, any, even pretty uh, not-so-good public library probably has some books on some of these things. I mean, my little local public library here has books on... CIA mind control experiments. It has Gary Webb's book. It's got books on uh, the radiation experiments the U.S. government did around the same time as the as the CIA mind control experiments. All this stuff is right there. It is hidden in plain sight. You know, speaking of hiding things in plain sight, and let's take this back to our discussion earlier about uh, revisionist history. Uh, sure. You mentioned that you have to be able to see what is seen, and you also have to, in your mind, you have to see what is not seen. When, when you're looking at history, just like economics, you, you have to see that which is seen and you also have to project that which is not seen. Um, I have a document from the Department of Army, the P- Department of the Army, United States Army Intelligence and Security Command, Freedom of Information, Privacy Office, Fort George, uh, Fort George G. Meade, Maryland, 20755-5995. That's their address. And this is called, um, if somebody wants to look it up on the internet, it's called Bioeffects of Selected Non-Lethal Weapons. It was uh, uh, retrieved through this Freedom of Information Act request in December 13th, 2006. And it's in reference to experiments that were done during the 1990s and before. So 
Uh, so just think technology-wise, this document that was released through Freedom of Information Act in 2006 discusses experimentation that took place in the 1990s. Now, if you think about what was your cell phone like in 1995 <laughs> and what's it like today and what was a, a computer like in 1995 and what's it like today? What was the Internet like in 1995 where you had to dial up AOL, you know, and what's it like today? So if you just project ahead from what's released in this Freedom of Information Act from 2006 discussing the mid-90s, then you just let your mind flow ahead. And in this document, it's talking about non-lethal uh, means of crowd control and non-lethal means of, well, what it calls bioeffects of selected non- non-lethal weapons. And, and it talks about, like, using uh, light and laser to confuse a crowd and force them. You know, if a crowd is getting unruly, you can, they have these, uh, they worked on the technology to use uh, lights and lasers to confuse the crowd and force them to back up. They used uh, radio frequency energy uh, cannons. Uh, and these are, have actually been deployed in, uh, in Iraq and they were ready to be deployed in the U.S. at two different protests and then they, uh, Homeland Security decided not to, they had them available and they decided not to use them because the situation didn't warrant it. But these, uh, these, um, uh, radio frequency cannons can be fired at a crowd and it causes the skin to heat to a, to a temperature that doesn't actually harm the skin, but it really hurts and it makes you run away. And so in this document, it talks about these different things, including um, what it call, calls uh, aural effects. I'm mispronouncing that probably A-U-R-A-L, which means hearing. And and one of the one of the experiments that they did using low frequency uh, radio waves was to actually send. Uh, audible signals into a person's inner ear so that they could literally talk to a person while the guy standing next to him couldn't hear it. And it documents, in this document, it it explains how that could be used in a positive sense. Let's say you have a hostage in a situation, and he's surrounded by ten terrorists, let's just say. And so you fire this beam at his head, and you can literally give him a message we're going to count to three. On the count of three, drop to your knees. And so, and, and the terrorists standing around the, the hostage can't hear this. They're beaming it directly into the hostage's head. And, and he's picking up, picking it up with his inner ear, not hearing it through his, uh, uh, outer senses. And so then they count down one, two, three, duck, and he jumps to the ground and they can shoot all the terrorists and he stands back up perfectly fine. So that's kind of the scenario. They don't really put it that clear, but that's kind of what they're indicating. And then uh, uh, then they also say that this could also be used in a negative way. You can kind of imagine, and they actually use the phrase, you can put into someone's mind the voice of God. Hmm. Now, imagine for yourself, this is a situation that took place with the so-called D.C. Naval Yard shooter, where he claimed that a team was following him from motel to motel and putting words into his brain, letting him hear words into his brain. Well, that's pretty much exactly what this document describes. And eventually, he, if we believe the story that the government puts out, this is the government's story on this situation, 
he claims that this took place. He claims that, that he kept hearing these voices in his head and that they were put into his head by this team that was following him. And eventually he goes in and shoots up the place uh, uh, in uh, at the dockyards and in, in, at the naval yards in Washington, D.C. Well, you can imagine if a person did start to hear a voice in their head, you can imagine how that would mess with their brain. And it actually says that in this document. Another thing that I found really interesting in this document is it talks about a different uh, microwave um, weapon that can be used to direct energy to a specific depth on a person's body. So they can they can shoot it at you and cause a skin temperature increase to a point of discomfort, like on one small patch of your skin. But then they can adjust the wave uh, the wavelength. And it can pass through the skin without heating the skin, and they can heat a specific organ to cause a specific organ to mimic a uh, an infection. In other words, they give you a fever, like let's just say in your liver. Now, here's a weird now, and that's as far as the document goes with it. And this is where reading into something what's not necessarily there, you know, in the in the in the in the paper, but you can read through it. So if you can shoot this weapon at a person and and pick out one specific organ, let's say their spleen or their liver or their kidneys or whatever, and you can mimic an infection in one organ, then you throw the whole body into a series of reactions that can take that person in any number of directions health-wise. And and so they don't actually say we have a weapon that can mimic you know uh, influenza in your body. They don't say that, but but they describe a thing in such a way that it's not hard to see how it could be used to do exactly that. It's really scary if you read this document. Yeah, there was something that came out all the way back in the seventies, and you can find I think on YouTube if you put in something like. CIA dart gun, something along those lines, you'll probably get the video clip of it. And the U.S. Senate, uh, I think is part of the church committee, which was actually looking into CIA misconduct. Yeah, Frank, Frank Church and John uh, uh, John Tower. Right, right. And one of the many things that they talked about is that the CIA was developing a dart gun, you know, that they had by the 70s, where I think it was something along the lines of an air pistol, basically, and it shot darts that somehow or other made almost no mark when entering the body. They, I think they might have even been frozen, uh, some some sort of you know fluid or whatever, frozen, so that it goes into your body, then thaws out and disappears, leaves only the tiniest little pinprick mark on your skin. No one would notice it unless they knew what to look for. And that they they developed a poison that almost perfectly mimicked a heart attack. And, and this is what they had 40-some-odd years ago. They had a dart gun that leaves almost no mark and then makes you have a heart attack. So Yeah, and uh, let, me, um, let me just pick on a popular TV show. Uh, there's a show called Mythbusters that kind of went into that a little bit. And if you watch the show, they disprove it. But here's the problem with that. First off, Mythbusters doesn't have the budget that the CIA has. Mythbusters does not have the motivation that the CIA has. Mythbusters does not have the team of experts that the CIA has. And Mythbusters, 
took like a week to try to figure this out, whereas the CIA has been working on this for decades. So, you know, a lot of people on the Internet, if you bring this up, they'll say, oh, Mythbusters busted that myth. That didn't happen. Um, well, you can believe an entertaining TV show that they took like a week to shoot in, you know, in San Francisco while, while a bunch of ex-stuntmen played games. Or you can believe the government's actual, you know, uh, releases where in with the church commission those guys those those CIA agents did not want to talk about this this was not something that they wanted to talk about but the church commission put them in a situation where they either had to come forward and talk about this stuff or they were going to get investigated thoroughly uh, because this was right in the wake of the of Watergate and a bunch of them in Washington were really sort of hyped up on investigating and, and turning up bad stuff inside the government. So the CIA didn't reveal this stuff because they wanted to or because they wanted to impress people with their great abilities. They let this stuff come out because they were forced to by the church commission uh, through threats of either having their, their funding cut off or through further investigations. So if, you know, so if you're questioning somebody, and you're going to put them in a situation where they will give up, you know, uh, secret A, B, and C in order to save secrets D, E, and F. Then A, B, and C are the light secrets. They're 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 giving you those to keep you from seeing D, E, and F. Imagine what D, E, and F are. Is that did I say that in a in a uh, in a way that made sense? Yeah, no, no, and I, and I agree with that. And we do know for sure that. I think it was around the time those investigations were really starting. You had a, a director of the CIA named Richard Helms, who was just about to retire, and he he was there a long time. You find him uh, as one of the movers and shakers behind getting MK Ultra going under Alan Dulles in the fifties. He had been, you know, career CIA guy, and right as he was about to retire, he ordered the CIA to just go on an absolute rampage of document destruction. And, you know, probably a couple warehouses full of documents were destroyed. So, again, the only things that survived are things that just, you know, by dumb luck were in a box in, in a different shelf and, you know, escaped being burned or shredded or what have you. So, again, we only know the handful of things that, that survived that sort of stuff. Yeah, once again, our, our saving grace when it comes to dealing with government, whether we're talking, I, you know, I mentioned the Indian government earlier, but the, one of the savings, saving graces when it comes to dealing with government is that the structure of bureaucracy that all governments are based on is so cumbersome and it's, it's got so many levels of stupidity built into it that, uh, you know, on these critical things like this, it just doesn't function very well. It doesn't function the way, you know, a very tight individual owned company might work where one guy knows all the book work and he knows all the manufacturing and he knows all the sales aspects and one guy can really manage a company and he knows what's going on. Government's not like that. Government is a massive collection of some really evil people and some people who really don't care, who just want to get a paycheck, and some people who are, you know, slugs, who are are one step away from their their government job is one step away from welfare. They essentially show up don't steal, don't do any work, take a paycheck, go back home, and that's their government bureaucracy job. And that's the saving grace of government. If there's any good thing about government, it is that it is so rife with incompetency 
that they're incapable of cleaning up their messes. Sure, and it's one of the things that makes revisionist history possible is those instances where, through incompetence, through putting the files in the wrong shelf or what have you, that something that was supposed to never see the light of you know public scrutiny does get out. And that's that's one of the main reasons why revisionist history is necessary, because things come out sometimes decades later, uh, after the fact, that were not known at the time that you know some event was going on. And so history books that were written shortly after that event, they might have to be, um, you know, refuted or, or, um, you know, updated or what have you just to reflect the fact that, that we now know something that we just did not know before. We've about hit our time limit, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to come on the show with me today. And I want to, again, encourage all of my listeners to seriously go over and check out Dangerous History Podcast. Um, and, again, I'll put links in today's show notes. But before, CJ, before I let you go, I want to hit you with uh, um, two topics and just I, I didn't uh, I didn't give uh, CJ a, a heads up that I was going to do this, so this is right Uh-oh. out of the blue for him. So, um, in uh, in in current uh, pop culture, there's a movie out right now that's roughly or loosely, I should say, loosely based on the 1930s uh, comic strip um, uh, Annie. What's it called? Little Orphan Annie. And uh, the the movie uh, producers chose to make a uh, uh, an artistic change in the show. They they renamed the uh, adoptive father figure in the movie, and they didn't use the old 1930s uh, name for him, which was Daddy Warbucks. And I wanted to bring this up because uh, not necessarily. Uh, I'm not expecting you to be a uh, you know uh, knowledgeable on on Little Orphan Annie, but the writer, the original writer of Little Orphan Annie, who started that uh, uh, strip back in the 1920s, the the character of Daddy Warbucks, the background story for him was that he was himself an orphan. He was he he was raised in really bad poverty. He, but he pulled himself up by his bootstraps in the great American story, and he got on his feet just before World War One, and he was in a position where he owned manufacturing capabilities going into World War One, and so coming out of World War One, he was, uh, I think they called called him, and this, again, this is in the 1920s uh, cartoon strips that was in the newspapers. They called him something like a gajillionaire or something like this, you know, a bazillionaire or whatever. They made up the word. But the idea was, you know, that he had more money than Fort Knox, so to speak. Uh And this worked as a uh, as a vehicle of explaining how this guy was so rich, so unbelievably rich. You could just call him Daddy Warbucks, refer that he made his money during World War One. And your typical newspaper reader went, oh, okay, I get that, yeah. Mm. Because in the 1920s, people understood that the purpose of World War I was to make massive amounts of money for a very small select group of people. Now, we've kind of moved away from that. Americans nowadays, if you talk to them and you say, well, there are small groups of people that make a lot of money off of war, and they'll say, oh, no, 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 that can't be, you know. Or they'll say, well, war uh, helps the overall economy. And all these things are myths. It doesn't happen. War 
you know, sucks wealth out of the economy, sucks wealth, 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 with a TH, not an F, uh, sucks wealth out of the, the working people's pockets, destroys wealth in general, and enriches a very small group of people. And this was understood so much so in the 1920s that you could make a cartoon strip, a comic strip in a newspaper, and it wasn't even questioned. But nowadays, that's been scrubbed. He's no longer Daddy Warbucks. He's been given a, you know, a more politically correct name. And he didn't make his fortunes off of, you know, war and that kind of thing. It's kind of an odd thing that took place there in the last 100 years where a thing that was accepted as entirely believable, you know, a guy could make a fortune from being a, a, a utilizing his position in politics and getting war money to that being scrubbed out of the narrative entirely in a hundred years. It's really, uh, it's, it's kind of disturbing to me. And it's ironic too, because in the 1920s and thirties, there wasn't the internet and all the other resources that we have today for the average person to get real information. And so even without all those resources, the average person was probably more likely to have a more realistic view of something like the military industrial complex than people today when, when two seconds on the internet can, can look all this stuff up. You know, uh, Smedley Butler's famous, uh, War as a Racket, probably just the most famous example, but you also had, uh, the Nye Committee, uh, in Congress investigating a lot of this war profiteering and so on. And, uh, of all people, um, actually during the war, Helen Keller, uh, who, who was an anti-war activist during World War One, Helen Keller during the war, uh, criticized the war as basically a way for uh, the sort of J.P. Morgan interest to just enhance their portfolios. And need I need I emphasize that the deaf and blind woman <laughs> could see through the war propaganda and see that, you know, it was uh, it was a racket. That's kind of a my mind immediately jumped to the who and and Tommy. Right. You know, that he could see even though he was the the phrase they used, the deaf, dumb and blind. Even though he right. was deaf, dumb, and blind, he could see the con that was taking place between his mother and the preacher, the evangelist, the TV evangelist person. And it, right. and you can kind of see the comparison there with Helen Keller that even though her physical senses were limited, maybe that even enhanced her ability to see through the nonsense and realize that there was a giant con job going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was obviously a very smart lady and... um you know, she was a socialist as far as domestic policy goes, but I guess nobody's perfect. <laughs> At least she was she was good and solid on the war issue. The last thing I want to throw at you before I let you go, back in 1995, I was living in Reno, Nevada, and I was reading somewhere, and I can't even remember where it was, and it may have been 94 that I read this, that uh, there was going to be a new cable channel. And at the time, I, I didn't subscribe to cable. Uh, I didn't have any desire to subscribe to cable. But I, I read this somewhere, and it, it may have been in like Smithsonian Magazine or somewhere like that. But there was enthusiasm that there was going to be this new uh, cable channel that was going to be called the History Channel, and it was just going to be about history. And I got so naively excited about this. I thought, oh, wow. And when it came out, I believe in 95 or 96, whenever whenever it became available in Reno, Nevada at the time, I actually subs subscribed to cable just so I could get this history channel because I was so I was homeschooling my kids at the time and I was I was just so naively enthusiastic that oh here's going to be a whole channel that's just going to be dedicated to history and it's going to be so great. 
And uh, now it's been, what is that, uh, to 95, 2005, 2015. We're coming up on, you know, uh, 20 years that the History Channel has been around. And for essentially 20 years, it has been an absolute disappointment to me right and left. And I, and I shouldn't have been, you know, it's a, it's a joint project between Disney and, uh, and Hearst. Uh, right. Hearst being the newspaper conglomerate that essentially through William Randolph Hearst, and now I, I ceremoniously spit on the ground as I say his name. <laughs> um, he almost single-handedly got the U.S. into the Cuban Revolution and therefore the uh, Spanish-American War um, purely for the purpose of selling newspapers. I mean, he had probably no other real motivation other than he knew that war would sell papers, and so he manipulated the American public thinking that, uh, you know, that if he could get the United States into a war... And here was the perfect opportunity with the sinking of the Maine. He could publicize lie after lie after lie in national newspapers, and the American people would buy it, and he would have his war that he could sell newspapers for. That's the company now, along with the Disney Channel, I mean, uh, a Disney Corporation, that has the History Channel. And I didn't see that in 1995, and I wish I had had a little bit more maturity and a little bit more information at the time. Um but uh, having said all those slanderous things, uh, what what word of advice would you give to somebody who's uh, who watches the History Channel and thinks maybe that what they're getting there might be actual history? Well, I can't remember the last time they even had sort of uh, you know phony establishment history. Heck, I'm I'm nostalgic for the good old days when it was just rah rah for D Day. You know, the the joke back in the '90s was people called it the Hitler Channel because yeah, it yeah. was nothing but World War II special after World War II special. And it's one of those things where now I'm nostalgic for that. I mean, and, and those, were, those were pretty bad. They were generally uh, very much just sort of American nationalism and jingoism, you know, the notion that Team America single-handedly beat the Nazis and blah, blah, blah. And let's, let's not mention that the Russians actually did 90% of that and all that sort of thing. And and now it's at the point where there's not even that sort of stuff. Now it's nothing but ice road truckers and crazy alien Cajun people. Yeah, oh yeah, all the alien nonsense and <laughs> and crazy Cajun people spouting off gibberish while while they try to kill an alligator and what have you. And you know, I I think it's it's part of a of a trend generally. I mean, if you look at most cable networks that have that have come into existence for some specific purpose, um, you find that they abandoned that purpose within about a decade or two. So the History Channel pretty much has given up on anything related to history, at least real history. The The Learning Channel is nothing but reality shows about really stupid people. <laughs> um, when was the last time MTV showed a music video? Right? Very true, yeah. I, I think at 3 in the morning they have maybe 20 minutes of music videos, but the rest of the time it's nothing but reality shows. And so that that's just the general trend, you know, that a channel comes into being, oh, this channel is going to be for X, and and next thing you know, you know, it's it's not even about what it's supposed to be about. Um, the only ones I can think of that are still sticking with their original goal are maybe ESPN and, and BET. So <laughs> if, if you ever turn on ESPN and, and start seeing reality shows that have nothing to do with sports, or if you ever turn on uh, BET and there's nothing but Caucasians on it... Um, <laughs> Then you know, I, I suppose that the apocalypse is imminent. Yeah, the shark has been jumped. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, CJ, I really appreciate you coming on the show with me today. And, you know, I honestly think we could do this for six or eight hours and completely bore the audience stiff. <laughs> uh, but I want to really encourage people to get over to Dangerous History Podcast. Again, I want to state that I'm winding down the Bad Quaker podcast. I'm going to be spending more of my effort with the Freedom Fiends and the radio show. We're, we're now on about 35 channels coast to coast, real radio stations that broadcast actual radio, not like most uh, stuff on the Internet where they say, you know, oh, it's radio. Uh, really? Are you broadcast on anything that's actually a radio station? Well, I'm on, you know, True FM or whatever. No, you know, radio, not internet, radio. And the Freedom Fiends are on uh, about 35 actual radio stations plus one TV station. And it's real live radio. It's not pretend on the, on the internet, you know, playing a game that, to pretend that we're on the radio. Um, so and I, I say that because we have actually had, uh, detractors who have claimed, uh, that, like like one person said, well, they're just on one uh, uh, one market that nobody's ever heard of, and uh, when people say things like that, they're either idiots or liars, and there's no ground there for a third option. They're they're one or the other. They're either an idiot or a liar. But uh, so as I wind down, that was my little uh, pro freedom fiends rant there. But as I wind down the Bad Quaker podcast. Uh, I'm going to be spending more and more time to try to get the Freedom Fiends uh, up and working. And it's working now, but we, we, we're not satisfied with 35 channels. We want to double that. We want to triple that. We want to get this message that I've been pushing with the Bad Quaker podcast and with the Freedom Fiends have been pushing for the same time frame uh, for these years and what CJ also pushes on his Dangerous History podcast. We want to get these things out to a wider audience so that we're not just preaching to the choir here on the Internet where, you know, uh, you know here's the real difference. Uh, on the Internet... If somebody is curious about libertarian ideas or Austrian economics or ANCAP theory, you know, anarcho-capitalism, they're, 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 they think about these things, they're curious about them, they do a Google search, they might come up with the Mises Institute, they might come up with a popular podcast, they might come up with a variety of different websites. And that's all well and good, but again, this is preaching to the choir. What we're trying to do with the Freedom Fiends is we're trying to put a radio broadcast in people's cars as they're driving home from church on Sunday or as they're driving their kids to a picnic on Saturday afternoon or as they're driving a truck across the United States at 3 o'clock in the morning. And we want to put an actual radio broadcast into their vehicle so that they're when they're driving along and they're trying to stay awake and they're trying to just, you know, what's going on, what's happening with the news, we want to present to them something that has never, ever been presented in its entirety on American radio waves, and that is the Freedom Fiends. And anything that, that the folks can do, my listeners can do to support that over at freedomfiends.com and to get that radio station. If that means calling your local radio station that is a talk that's already a talk radio format and saying there's a, a talk show that, that I want to hear on my local radio and I would listen to this station if you were playing that, that kind of thing is what it's going to take to put the Freedom Fiends on more and more radio stations. In the meantime, if you can go over 
and listen to Dangerous History Podcast. Download a few of them. Listen to them. Listen to what CJ is trying to do over there. Realize that we're talking about an actual history professor in an actual college that's having to deal with all the restrictions in his day-to-day life of teaching uh, you know, it kind of, he's kind of like our mole, what we were talking about earlier with, uh, with COINTELPRO and so forth. CJ is kind of one of our moles that's going into the system and is infiltrating it with information for young students, uh, college age students that can hear things that they can never hear in a college setting almost anywhere else in the United States. And we have a few professors that are doing that, uh, yeah, uh, there there's several that pop into my mind and their names just escape me. One I did an interview with in Colorado that's really doing a good job. And there's a guy at George Mason University and uh, there's one in Yale. And so we have a few of these professors that are history uh, uh, related, not just uh, we already kind of have a, a good in ground into the economics um, uh, realm. But we've, we're having more and more professors on college level that are getting in there and getting to kids. And, and bringing this message to them, and that's what CJ is doing. So it's important if you've li- if you've enjoyed the Bad Quaker podcast over the years, and if you've enjoyed the history aspects of the Bad Quaker podcast, I can't encourage you enough to get over to, to Dangerous History podcast, download some of CJ's um, shows, and support him. Because let me tell you something: I'm sitting here in my in my studio in my uh, in my RV. And I'm looking at a couple thousand dollars worth of equipment that I have invested in this over the years. And it's not cheap to do this. It's not cheap to keep a website up and maintained. It's not cheap to take time out of your weekly uh, uh, schedule and put together all the notes that it takes to put together an hour podcast. That That is expensive in, in terms of what you take away from your family, what you take away from your life. Time that you're not earning money doing something else, time that you're not mowing the lawn or fixing the roof or whatever it is in life that, that, that keeps us all busy. To take time out of your life and to, to do something like a, like a regular podcast, not only equipment level, and I know CJ just now purchased a new microphone that he used in today's podcast, but not just in equipment, in time and in effort and in blood, sweat and tears that we put into these podcasts. If you can get over there and support CJ, by all means do it. Because, you know, every single one of these matters. And every single one of these that's a guy or a, or a lady who's pouring their guts out, maybe we're not 100% correct on every single issue that we talk about. But we're striving for the truth and we're seeking the truth. And that's the best we can do right now. Until... More and more of this stuff is revealed and we can figure out more and more how these things work. We have to be able to tear these things apart and and find the truth in history and find the truth in government and find out what the motivations of these people really are and what their goals are and what we can do to to upset the apple cart and, and get our freedom back like we used to have before all these governments came upon humanity and, and brought the blight that they, that they brought upon us. Uh, again, CJ, and then now that's the end of my rant on that. Again, CJ, thanks very much for coming on the show with me today. I appreciate so much what you're doing, and that uh, and that you're going to be bringing the service to to the internet for folks. Oh, you're welcome, Ben. Thanks very much. Uh, I I enjoyed your rant, by the way, and uh, just want to thank you for having me on, and uh, hope all your listeners will come check me out. It's profcj.org. 
And folks, thanks for listening today, and, and remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks. <laughs>